Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shiv Glani, and today on Raise the Line, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Mark Schweitzer, who's the Dean of the School of Medicine and Vice President of Health Affairs at Wayne State University in Detroit, Michigan. Dr. Schweitzer assumed that position in April, just as COVID-19 was becoming a growing problem here in the United States. We'll be asking about that experience, how the medical and other schools are approaching education this semester, and what his vision is for medical education at Wayne State. So Dr. Schweitzer, thanks so much for being with us today. Happy to be here. Should be an interesting conversation. Definitely. So I'm, I'm curious, uh, one of the core values at Osmosis is to start with the heart, meaning we, we want to show care wherever we can. Just before we get into the questions, how are you doing personally? I'm sure the last few months have been quite stressful. Yeah, it's been really stressful for my family. Um, because we are relocated here uh, from Long Island, New York. Um, I have two disabled children and it's kind of like moving, but not quite moved. You don't really get to know the neighborhood or the surroundings or the environs. So um, I'm a radiologist, so we call this case space. So I feel badly for them both for relocating and not fully relocating at the same time. So going into your impressive background as a medical educator, radiologist, and scientist, I'm curious, how did you get interested in the medical field and then specifically radiology in the first place? If I had to be honest about it, it's an odd story. So um, um, I I went to a six-year medical program. So basically, I applied to medical school when I was 17 years old. And no matter how mature you are or what you think you want to do at 17, you really have no idea what you want to do at 17. And I fell into it because um, I grew up in a very middle-class household without a lot of opportunities, without a lot of role models. And the chance to be a doctor was kind of a way to break out of the neighborhood that I was in. I didn't really have concrete motivations at that time other than being able to try and get a career that would put me in a better situation than um, my friends and neighbors were. But randomly, it was a great decision. You know, we all like what we do, and most people like what we do. And when I say to students as being a physician, it's kind of a pretty good thing. Uh, You make a nice living, and you spend your day helping people. Um, A lot of other people can say that, but pretty much every physician can say that. Being an academic physician, a teaching physician, is a better thing. Uh, You spend your day helping people, and you train the next generation how to help people. Uh, I've been a researcher as well, and being a researcher is perhaps even a better thing, because you spend your day helping people, you train the next generation how to help people, and through your research, you can help people and patients who you've never been able to see or meet. Being an academic leader, in a way, is the best thing, because you can help create the environment to allow all those things to occur. So I kind of fell into medicine without giving it a lot of thought, but I'm damn lucky I fell into it. Um, Why I did radiology is kind of similar. Um, I fell into it without a lot of thought, but it does fit, and maybe I knew this subliminally, um, my skill sets. Um, I'm able to think fairly fast. I'm good at pattern recognition, and I like complexity. And radiology is basically the study of the complexity of how diseases affect the human body. 
I love how you kind of walk through that progression of, uh, of from physician to, to being an academic leader and then choosing radiology. Radiology is also a field that telemedicine and virtual care have been a, a mainstay of for many years, uh, even before, you know, Tom Frieden wrote The World is Flat. He was talking about how, you know, as physicians go to bed in the U.S., uh, radiologists in India could be looking at um, their, their scans. Before we go into COVID-19 and specifically your work at Wayne State, how do you feel like this moment has affected demand for radiology um, and, and also just telemedicine as a whole um, over the past few months? I think the pandemic has made the world um, both smaller and bigger at the same time. And the way it's made it smaller is diseases don't recognize borders, don't recognize ethnicities, don't recognize genders, don't recognize socioeconomic status. You get a disease, you get a disease. So it's made the world smaller in that you can see things progress and spread from what we call country to country, but to an organism as just a non-existent barrier. But it's made the world bigger in a way that you know how much you're dependent upon your local resources. If you need a respirator, it doesn't help that there's 100 extra respirators across the border in Canada. What really matters is how many respirators are in downtown Detroit. Now, radiology um, was ahead of the game, as you correctly mentioned in terms of internationalization of medical care. And I don't see internationalization of medical care as much as a threat is artificial intelligence in medical care is a threat. Because having someone who is reimbursed at a lower rate than you is really an only an intervening step, an intermediate step before um, someone could potentially replace you or replace part of what you do. Now, that may be years or perhaps decades off, but it will happen. So as mentioned, you took over as dean of Wayne State in April, smack dab in the middle of the worst pandemic we've seen in a century, and you were in a large urban area of Detroit. Can you just tell us about that experience? How was it doing a major job change, taking over a major school, and moving your family across the U.S.? It's interesting. So um, I'll give you two perspectives on it. The first perspective is kind of the granular perspective. Um, Wayne State, because our president is a physician and epidemiologist, um, was ahead of the curve. President Wilson made classes remote early, made the fall semester overwhelmingly remote early, and basically said, unless you absolutely have to be on campus, you shouldn't be on campus. But at the same time, I'm dean of the medical school, and at the medical school, the doctors are all working in the hospitals. So we're doing this via Zoom, and I do most of my meetings via Zoom. And, and I feel awkward uh, because I'm not in the trenches and I'm used to being in the trenches. And I feel guilty because I'm doing this from my house when the person I'm speaking to is working in a hospital and ripping off their gown and mask, perhaps um, being able to speak to me. So that's kind of the granular aspect. The bigger aspect is what degree is this a rubber band? And what I train the students is every stress is like a rubber band. You stretch, and if you stretch the right amount, you'll snap back. 
and you'll snap back quickly, basically to where you began. But sometimes you stretch that rubber band so much that it rips. And when you let go, it doesn't go back. So the question I have, and I don't know the answer, has this rubber band ripped? Or when it's all over, will it stretch back? That's fascinating. Or, or you know, will it stretch back? Maybe not all the way to where it was. There will be some change. But have you heard of the author, uh, Nicholas Nassim Taleb, and who's famous for Black Swan, but he's also written a book called Anti-Fragile? I've heard of the author. I'm not familiar with the book. Anti-fragile is, a, is an interesting concept relevant to, to what you were just mentioning, where you know, there are things that are fragile that, it, you know, say a piece of glass that falls from a height and breaks. There's things that are resilient that when it falls from a height, it doesn't break. And then there are things that are anti-fragile, which when they are impacted, they fall and hit the floor, they actually become stronger. An example from the biological world is DNA. Um, DNA... Uh, it becomes stronger even when there are stresses that are applied to it, like uh, climate change, et cetera. And so I'm curious, uh, I mean, based on what you've just described of the rubber band, if you think um, some of the changes you all have made have made Wayne State anti-fragile, hopefully, uh, and not the rubber band that snaps. Yeah, I think if you use that analogy, Wayne State is anti-fragile from the beginning. Um, we're in urban school. We're a public university. We're the largest single campus medical school in the country. And our mission is to treat the underserved and educate the relatively underserved. So we thrive in these circumstances. You know, the Wayne State graduate is always a doctor who rolls up his or her sleeves and gets things done regardless of the environment. So I think our educational model, um, our tradition, and to continue the analogy, our DNA is ideally suited for this environment. And when I speak to the students, I say to them, you may not realize it, but you're lucky. You're gonna learn things and experience things that you're gonna remember and affect you for the rest of your life. And your metal is gonna be tested. Most people never get a chance to test their metal. I went to medical school with a guy who used to be a Green Beret. And he finished his service, decided to go to medical school. And he was talking to me one day, and his great regret was that he had never lived and served in a war. And me being from New York City, it seemed like kind of an odd comment. You know, well, why would you want to be in a war? And I asked him that. And he said, because I spent my life training. And I wanted to see what I was made of, how I would relate and respond to the most adverse circumstances. What was my metal? And to me, COVID is doing that to doctors and doing it to our students. That's a great, great story. And I, I agree, with, uh, agree with that. In many respects, uh, running a, a distributed company feels like this is quite the test, not only because of COVID, but also a lot of the other uh, sociopolitical issues that we're facing. You mentioned, you know, Wayne State is in Detroit. There's a lot of racial unrest and inequality in general across the U.S., but Detroit being an urban center has some of that going on before COVID. I'd love to hear any thoughts you have on how Wayne State may have responded to that. I'm sure a lot of your students got quite active, maybe White Coats for Black Lives as an example. Um, any, any commentary you may have on that? 
Well, to, to, to those in the audience who don't know about Wayne State, um, for its 150 year history, we've been representative of the communities for what we exist in. So we have one of the largest Latino and African-American um, populations of tier one research universities. And the medical school has one of the largest underrepresented medicine student populations of all but a handful of medical schools. We make an effort to do this, but not as much of an effort as, as other schools do, because it's always been the history of Wayne State. Our faculty is also quite diverse, not as diverse as it could or should be. And our leadership is quite diverse. The president of the university is a very prominent uh, African-American physician. Um, so Wayne State should and has historically taken a leadership role in serving the communities for which we exist. We should do better. We're trying to alter the curriculum to respond to the changes, and we will do that very shortly. But it, it is in what we do every day, the patients we take care of, the neighborhood that we exist in, and the students who we attract. Uh, students come to Wayne State, I believe, for a reason. And they wouldn't go to a different medical school and thrive to the degree that they do here if they weren't coming for that reason. And I'm very proud of that reason, and that's why I came. That, that's wonderful. And our experiences working with faculty and students and interacting with alums from Wayne State has been nothing short of positive. I think uh, in your comments, I hear that, that pride for the school uh, and, I, and definitely in those interactions, I've seen it. Before we started this interview, I mentioned that um, we work closely with your former genetics education leadership at Wayne State, a woman and genetic counselor named Ann Greb, who now runs genetic education at 23andMe, which is a partner of ours. And certainly just based on that one faculty interaction we've had before, very impressed with the faculty at, at Wayne State. So going back to some of the changes that you've seen and made over the past few months uh, and being ahead of the curve, as you mentioned, you know, we, we saw that report from the AAMC this year, uh, just a couple of weeks ago that was covered in Wall Street Journal and USA Today, among others, that applications for medical school are up. I think the stat was 17% year over year to date. I'd love to hear about your experience. Uh, are more students, you think, applying not only to the medical school, but the nursing program and other health professionals program in your experience? And, and what do you think the reasons for that are, if that is true? So the jury is still out for this year because applications are still rolling in. Um, we're on a rate to exceed last year. And for us, that would be breaking the 10,000 application barrier. But to be honest, once you get that many applications, um, the vast majority of students applying to any medical school anywhere end up applying to Wayne State. So once you reach that point, it's hard to get much above that because that's roughly 60 to 70%, I believe, of all the applicants to medical school anywhere in the country. Um, nursing school applications and health sciences in general are becoming more desirable. But I think the short term is not what may end up happening with the long term. You know, some people, some students are taking a year off community college registration and attendance has gone down quite a bit in most of the country, particularly in Michigan. And a lot of schools have kept up their stats by going somewhat deeper into their applicant pool than they have historically. 
So I think any of these numbers for acceptances, number of applications, um, might be looked at a little bit skeptically. I still believe medicine is, is a tremendously righteous thing to do. Um, there are a lot of righteous things to do, but medicine is certainly one of them. I've met very, very few people who um, regret going into any one of the healing professions. I've met very, very few people who don't feel satisfied with their careers. Some may be burnt out, particularly now, but I think most people are satisfied overwhelmingly with what they've accomplished. And the health professions are endlessly challenging and complex. I was on a plane once uh, to Nashville. I was going there as a visiting professor and uh, I'm a big music fan. And the guy next to me was a very well-known music producer. I don't remember his name, but based upon the acts that he had produced, he must have been a, a very, very well-known music producer. And I'm a big music fan and I was kind of, you know, um, gushing and, and quite a bit in awe uh, and asking him questions and trying to get more information. And at the end of the flight, he says, I envy you. And I was so surprised by this because I envied him. And he says, I envy you because music is finite and science is infinite. There's only 10,000, 100,000, a million, however many ways to want to arrange notes, and that's it. But science is infinite. There's not a ceiling, and that's why I envy you. And I think that's why becoming a physician or any member of the healing professions is a great thing to do. It's hmm, a fascinating story. I love your ability to, to bring in stories like that, you know, to make different points. I think it's a, it's a really effective uh, and welcome um, quality you have there. And so I'm, I'm curious too, I mean, going back to some of the lasting changes that you think will happen, you know, for years, we've seen curricular reform to incorporate everything from uh, health policy, which is changing every year, it seems, to telehealth has been of interest for a long time, to nutrition, to burnout, care curriculum, wellness, et cetera. There's only so much you can teach in a four-year medical program or, or you know, a couple-year nursing program. Um, what are some of the lasting changes you think COVID is bringing to the healthcare system, and how are you planning to prepare your students for those? For example, we know some schools are setting up telehealth rotations. Um, we've had many telehealth companies on our podcast as well uh, that are interested in, in doing this with the schools. Uh, so I'd just love to hear what you think, A, the lasting changes from COVID will be to the healthcare system, and B, how do you plan on preparing your students for those changes? Okay, so I would say three things. I'd be lying, and I think almost anyone is lying if they know what the long-term changes are going to be. Um, everything waxes and wanes. It's kind of easy to jump on a bandwagon and usually the people who don't jump on the bandwagon uh, may end up being right more of the time. So telehealth has been around. I'm a radiologist. We were doing telehealth 30 years ago. Things that evolve slowly tend to stick. Things that evolve rapidly, I'd be suspicious about sticking. The change that we're doing, and we would have done it just regardless of COVID, to be honest, was I came here to train medical leaders. Um, Wayne State is a mission-based school. It's a public university. We're the 99%. And the 99% should be the leaders in healthcare. So we've started an organized curriculum for all years, but particularly the third and fourth years, to train leaders, to train them in all the skills they need 
that are in medicine that are separate from the science of medicine. That's the biggest change that we're going to want to do. And if I was honest, I would say we would have done it regardless of whether COVID was around or not. But it does stress that the import is not treating a patient, but minimizing disease. And if we can train our students that their job is to minimize the burden of disease, whether that's by preventing disease, treating it early, or treating it most effectively late, that's what we want to instill in our students. That, that makes a lot of sense. And that's, uh, I, I like how you're thinking about it. And, and I couldn't agree more about kind of the, uh, the bandwagon comment. There's a quote I really like. It's uh, Amara's Law, which is uh, people tend to overestimate the impact a technology will have in um, the short term, but underestimate the impact it can have in the long term. That's a great quote. We see this with the internet, with virtual reality, with uh, genetics. And similarly, I think, uh, you know, with, with any trend, right? So we tend to overestimate what COVID will do to the entire health system in two or three years. But maybe, you know, over the next decade, we're going to see some of these more lasting changes. That's well put. I agree. Thank you. Yeah. Um, kind of switching gears to something else that you've done according to your kind of story career. Uh, where you've consulted for professional sports teams. Yeah. The Mets, the Islanders, the Nets, uh, set Philadelphia 76ers and Philadelphia Eagles. We actually will have the team physician for the Yankees on this podcast in a couple of weeks as well. I would love to hear if you keep in touch with the sports world and what you learned from that experience and maybe any commentary you may have on the impact of COVID on, on, the, on the professional sports leagues. I'll give you a few things. Um, the first thing I learned is some weakness in my own character. Um, I was also, I was a radiologist at the Olympics after having done the professional sports teams. And I mentioned earlier my children and um, I wanted to do the Paralympics, not just the Olympics. I think most of us, at least in, in the world I live in and probably the world you live in, are kind of nerds and have this voyeuristic desire uh, to be somewhat less than a nerd. And association with athletes I think some degree fulfills that desire. And to me, it was kind of a weakness in my character that that's not really what's important in life and certainly not what's important in medicine. Uh, it's fun, gives interesting cocktail party conversation. Um, it's something to have nice on your resume, but I wish it didn't make me feel as good doing it as it did because there are a lot sicker people and a lot of people who really need healthcare um, that aren't as sexy and aren't in the newspaper and don't get the credit that they deserve. Now, in terms of COVID and sports, it's not just sports, it's everything we do other than work that's kind of diminished. It's entertainment, it's performances, and that degree is our culture. So my concern about the secondary effect of this is the fact that I don't think we're losing our culture, that won't happen, but we're freezing our culture. And that can't help but have a bad effect for at least the intermediate time. Wow, those are really self-aware and interesting comments for sure. I know we're coming up in time, so I had two last questions for you. The first is, you know, given that you are responsible uh, in large part for the education of so many future healthcare professionals and are raising the line, meaning increasing healthcare capacity, which is the nature of this podcast. 
you know, what advice would you give to people who are considering careers in healthcare or early on in their in their career uh, trajectory? I would say to be ambitious. I've seen too many smart people not do as much as they could, either because their ambition runs out, they have no role models to show them what they might be able to do, or they have a goal and they reach that goal and they stop. So I think to a large degree, ambition makes the two or 3% who end up really changing the world, change the world. And certainly 50% of the people could do that if they were mentored the right way, they had the right role models and they never gave up. So if I would give someone some advice, it would be don't limit yourself by ambition. Uh, when I was growing up, I never saw a doctor in my neighborhood. I never saw a chair of a department in my neighborhood, let alone a dean in my neighborhood. Um, and maybe that's part of what drove me. And if I talk to the friends who I grew up with, many of whom I'm, I'm still funny to this day, they don't understand what I would, what I do, even why I'd want to do it. And to me, it's a shame because they have no different sets of skills than I had, but because of the way society works, they didn't develop that same ambition. So if I gave advice to someone, it would be not to limit yourself and follow your ambitions. That's wonderful advice. And my last question is, um, is there anything else you'd like to share with our audience about anything you've done, uh, Wayne State is doing, et cetera? I want to say this about Wayne State because I'm damn proud of Wayne State. Um, there are many institutions that care as much about their mission as Wayne State. And I think having a sense of mission in life, whether as a person, as a group, or an institution, is really the distinguishing factor. And if anyone is listening to this, wants to go to Wayne State as a university, as a medical school, or for residency training, and you believe in a sense of mission, you should go to Wayne State because that's what we believe in and that's what we live and breathe every day. I love that. As a, as a very mission-driven organization ourselves at Osmosis, uh, I can have a lot of respect for that and it clearly comes through in all of the answers you've provided me. So with that, Dr. Schweitzer, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you, Shiv. Very interesting questions and I enjoyed our conversation. I'm Shiv Rivani. Thanks for checking out today's show and remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.